And now, a special high witness report from the field. Uncle Weed, Uncle Weed, this is the Home Office. Are you there? Are you there? Do you read me? Calling Uncle Weed, calling Uncle Weed. Calling Uncle Weed, do you read me? As a young chugler, I learned that on the other side of the planet, there's a region between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. They call this area Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent. And the earliest remnants of human civilization, as it were, come from this area. Well, there's bones that are earlier and dated back by carbon tests to be more primitive we humans really got our game together and started creating things like civilizations and inventions when we came to that area called Mesopotamia. Now, fast forward thousands of years later, and the history and the culture around Mesopotamia, well, politically, it's now called Iraq. And it's kind of chopped up between some different countries. And there's all sorts of political turmoil and, and uh, skirmishes, as it were. I hesitate to call it a war because it seems to be uh, miscommunications that lead to unrest and, and imperialistic campaigns. But you know well, all that for that, yourself. I want to talk about how it kind of However, like, uh, when it comes down to it and being it, uh, there, you know, influence and being the Muslim influence, someone who wakes up every day soldier, looking outside uh, and going, Holy while you're shit, there. I'm in Iraq and I'm here to do some other mission that's assigned by someone else, but there's an opportunity here that I can. Mm, perhaps effectuate some positive change, that's got to be kind of a daunting proposition. So, in order to sort this uh, situation out, I have an unnamed, I guess not a soldier, an officer, because it, the fundamental difference is between soldiers and officers, or seamen and officers, as they would call it in the, uh, in the Navy. Is that true? Uh, yes, I'm a naval officer, lieutenant in the U.S. Navy. <laughs> Spend call, me, a, call me Lieutenant Magnum. Call me Lieutenant Magnum. Oh, well, I like the reference there to the uh, classic 80s uh, TV series. Um, Thomas Magnum was the lieutenant in the U.S. Navy. And uh, based on your striking mustache, I'll, I'll say that, uh, well, maybe there's a little resemblance there. So I can go with Lieutenant Magnum. Now, Lieutenant Magnum, it wasn't all that long ago that you were over there in Iraq. Uh, and, you know, at the, at the risk of sounding like a kind of a trite question, um, how was it different going there and being on the ground than what you thought it would be the day before you left? Well, first of all, the, the, the distinction about being in Iraq is kind of taken this perspective. You have a land mass that's the size of California. And anyone who's made the drive from Las Vegas to, to Los, or pardon me, Los Angeles to Las Vegas knows that you drive through a lot of desolate land. Okay, now, Translate that into a whole country in the Middle East called Iraq. Now, if someone were to report to you on the east side of Los Angeles, there's some gang shooting. And you would, you would say, well, I'm going to cancel my trip to Sacramento because it's dangerous in California. And that's how it is. And a lot of the areas I traveled to, I was flying in Black Hawk helicopters, and I'd look down and I'd see people living their normal lives. And that's what amount about about amounted to. There'd be some violence in the, I guess they called it the Sunni Triangle, but that triangle got uh, a lot smaller um, 
during the time I was there. And when you, the majority of the country um, is um, just people living their lives. And I got to see that. And that's something the news doesn't show you. Mm-hmm. And as you travel around the country, you had an opportunity. Like when you're saying you saw the way that people lived their lives, you went off base and went and mingled in the villages and went and hung out in the towns. As a, as a naval officer who was off duty, you weren't wearing your military you know, uh, spangles and scrambles all over yourself. You were just a dude in a T-shirt going in these towns and saying, how do you do? Well, I had the opportunity to go up to the uh, Kurdish region, uh, to a city called Erbil, and uh, flew up in a Japanese C-130. And we landed at the airport. And you get off the airport, and you go out, you walk out front of the airport, and there's taxis lined up waiting for you. It's like a normal airport anywhere in Europe or United States <laughs> or Canada. And when we think of the Kurds, all we think of these people who have been uh, gassed by the, the old regimes and, and the, the National Geographic pictures of this horrible genocide. Yeah, and they're, the, they're, they're these people who are doing um, as much as they can to track business. In fact, during the time that I was in the Kurdistan area, they invite a, a big group of businessmen you know, from different countries, not just the United States, but different countries as well, to come out and see what they were doing up in northern Iraq, and they were invited to invest in it. And it was an area of Iraq where there was um, different um, different religions commingling, living together without fighting. Um, there was construction going on, uh, new shopping areas, new... Um, apartment buildings. Um, I saw a lot of cranes on the horizon, the city horizon. It was a really, uh, it's hard to believe that you're in Iraq and that's one of those parts you don't see. Now, as you're going from base to base, you know, you mentioned you were flying with the Japanese and when watching the mainstream media, you think it's just the U.S. in there and then you'd hear Bush famously saying, well, you didn't mention Poland. Poland's in the coalition of the willing but it turns out there's Slovakians, there's Fijians, there's a few Koreans, there's a few other countries there as well with some sort of military presence in Iraq, yeah? Um, during the time I was there, it was six divisions on the ground. Um, um, just before I left is when the surge began and got into full force, and they upped it to seven uh, divisions. But of the six divisions, um, one of the divisions was... Oper- um, I guess commanded by a British general. One of the one of them was by a Polish general, and one of them was by a Korean general. The Kurdistan area was all uh, Koreans, and uh, I, boy, I love the Koreans up there. What they're doing up there, you know, to have these um, battle update assessment briefs every night, and uh, it's basically it was given the whole the the four star general like the overall lay of the land of everything that was going on in all the different divisions. You know, you know Fallujah, Tikrit. Basra, he was getting the whole update of what was going on all over, and uh, and you know that there's, I guess, from a military, I guess kinetic battlefield perspective, there's so little going on in northern Iraq that maybe once a week they'd give the Koreans some face time on this battle assess- update assessment, and good old General Park would get up and go, "This is the Korean coalition in North Iraq." in Kurdish area. This week, we taught Taekwondo lessons in 
Urbil Community Center. And we dug two new water wells and repaired three schools. That is all. <laughs> I love these guys. That's a great update, man. That would be a monumental achievement. You weren't on the, the goon squad. You were on the recreation squad in some ways, I suppose. Well, that was my group. I was the reconstruction branch. I'm working for the um, commander of multinational corps Iraq. And um, it was in individual augment, which means as a member of the Navy, I went and joined an army unit that was kind of the staff to fill this function. And basically what we did is we... Um, we would, well, when I first arrived there, we would, we would basically we would um, review any plans and specs for projects that that uh, divisions were doing that were over two hundred thousand dollars. And during the time I was there, I tried to change it so that we 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 gave the different divisions more autonomy and and uh, we allowed them to to use um, better judgment on on reconstruction projects because we would actually go out there and train them. And I kind of did that on purpose because I want to go out and see the country. I'm, I hate to stay in one place. So during my time, I would go out and uh, I spent a couple of weeks down in Diwania training the Polish forces. I was up in northern Iraq training the Korean forces. I was out in Fallujah for a while and training all these new divisions as the divisions would come and go. I'd go in there and I'd train them on finding good projects and what to look for and doing project management, basic pro project management and uh, kind of give them the familiarity with some of the resources available to them to help them do these reconstruction projects. So I guess I'm blessed in a way that I was not one of the guys out kicking indoors and, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I was issued an M9 pistol. Um, when I handed in my um, magazine, uh, you know, six months after being there, it was clogged full of dust because I never had to use a thing. So I was in a position where I was able to go out into more of the stable areas and kind of promote reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Now, traveling around all these different bases and training these different um, batches of engineers and soldiers and civilians or whatever, uh, you had the opportunity to kind of observe the culture, the different sort of military slash civilian culture of these bases, civil service culture of these bases, as well as sample just the practical day-to-day -day life, uh, life in camp, of things like food and the routine and stuff like that. Do you have some observations on the differences between, say, a Slovakian, a Korean, and an American camp? Um, yeah, um, I, I made, I became really good friends with one Slovakian soldier. Great guy. Um, but uh, uh, one time there was a report of a Slovakia. Uh, a fatal casualty um someone was killed and and uh, i asked my buddy about it and he goes oh well you know he was not a warrior he was a medic and i thought to myself that's kind of odd that he'd make the distinction between a soldier and a medic and uh, that kind of caught me off guard because in other all other respects i thought the guy was great and uh i you know i got along with him and we had we shared so many viewpoints but when he kind of said that it and it caught me off guard, and it kind of made me realize that maybe in the Slovakian military culture, medic is kind of a second-rate mm. um, function, whereas the United States, we treat the medics, I mean, the... the rock stars. Yeah, the rock stars, yeah. So that was one thing I noticed that was kind of interesting. Um, also went down to the Polish camp one time, and uh, 
what can I say about the Polish camp? Um, it's funny because there's one camp, Diwania, which had maybe a total of 10 Americans that were there permanently stationed and the, the whole rest of the, you know, maybe uh, 5,000 soldiers that were there for, were, were a mix. They were split three ways. Um, Poland, El Salvador, and Mongolia. <laughs> like, man, whose idea was this? Can you <laughs> your mix? Yeah, and... Uh, so, I, you know, I kind of made friends with some of the Polish guys that I was training them because they were the kind of our engineer reconstruction liaison. One day we go to the uh, dining hall, and the dining hall was run by Halle Burton, like a lot of dining halls. And uh, they had the signs up for today's menu, and one of the items on the menu was Polish sausage. <laughs> it was basically like a kolbasa, you know, what we'd call a kolbasa at an American grocery store, and it tasted the same. And I asked the Polish guys, because <laughs> guys, this, the they call this full sauces. This tastes like anything you guys would eat at home. And they're like, no, no, I've never, I've never eaten anything like this before in my entire life. <laughs> so let's pause here because I need to open up a fresh beer, and then, uh, but I only have one extra hand. So let me open up a beer and then continue on with the Korean camp. Look at that, nice brown suds. Didn't get too much of that in Iraq. In fact, I didn't get any at all. <laughs> How about the Korean camp? Did they have some tasty food? Oh, the Koreans, uh, yeah, they refused the Halliburton. Um, the Korean camp was about 3,000 Korean soldiers and about, again, about 10 Americans that were up there. The Korean camp, they refused the Halliburton food and they kind of did things their own way because I imagine they want to eat kimchi. Oh, and yeah, rice. As a fan of Korean well, food, I'm kind of curious. Well, you know, I'm my wife's uh, my wife's from Asia, and you know, I eat a lot of rice and stuff at home. And and uh, you know, Hal Burton is you know as much flack as they get whenever you bring up the words Halle Burton, it carries a lot of luggage with it. But you know, they fed <laughs> us really well. And I have to say, I was totally satisfied with the meals and the feeding and the just the the whole life services for a soldier in Iraq is is really good. Um, having said that, you know, you eat all this food that they, they prepare. And I have to say the Halliburton um, bread pudding was by far the best I've ever eaten. Better than the bread pudding at Harrison Hot Springs? Because that was the best bread pudding I've ever had besides no, I, my mama's. Yeah, no, Halliburton, the, Halliburton, what they would do is they'd hire these chefs in from, uh, they're probably like these, they're probably like um, classically trained chefs from India, and they would come in and they'd cook all the meals since he had these fantastic meals. In fact, um, I would get with some of these East Indians and, and go, hey, can you hook me up with whatever you guys are eating? And I'd be eating these fabulous curry dishes <laughs> when I was there. And of course, of course, you know, then they had like the uh, six flavors of, of Baskin Robbins and, you know, they had the smoothies and they had, you know, just, they had the Mexican taco bar, they had the Greek Euros bar, they had, you know, so much variety. So... But even after, you know, eating that stuff every day for such a long time that going up to Korean camp and eating that kimchi and all the uh, bulgogi. Oh, bulgogi. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, rice. Oh, man. And they, the Koreans were the ones that were flat out refused. No, we don't need the Halliburton food services. We'll do our own. And they, boy, they did it right. <laughs> How about the Fijians? They were there until they had some civil unrest in their country, weren't they? Yeah, I you know I flew up to Baghdad from Kuwait with them, and they were on the plane with us. And uh, after we got off in Co 
Baghdad, I never saw another, another Fijian again. I'm not sure where they went and what they did. Now, in Iraq, it's a little bit of a juxtaposition because, you know, I, want, I don't want to get all political here, but the Americans are there fighting for freedoms and liberties and democracies, but it's in a culture, in a country where um, things like women are historically um, diminutized as a role. Alcohol is kind of verboten. Their hands are chopped off, um, well, you know, at least in Saudi Arabia, but the punishments are pretty draconian for what we feel, especially here in Canada, is pretty minor offenses. And I, I got to suspect that that kind of moral conjunction um, or tension comes into play in the soldier's psyche, but also in a day-to-day life of like, geez, I could really enjoy a beer right now. How do you resolve that? Well, I mean, there was no uh, beer was forbidden out there. Any alcoholic beverages were forbidden out there for the time I was there. So I'm not, sh- I'm not sure if that was more a sensitivity to the culture because, you know, at the at the dining facilities, we would have pork dishes. And so I don't think it was out of consideration of the local culture. Um, I did have a, like a 96-hour, they call it like a 96-hour pass. And I went down to Qatar for four days. And uh, and down there, you can drink beer. And it's a Muslim country. And if you were to go outside the gates of the base, and except for like designated areas, you cannot drink. So... Mm-hmm. I don't think anything. I think that was more out of just the fact that you're there, you know, in a, as a soldier, as a soldier, rather than more of out of respect for the local customs. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of the Muslim countries, they uh, enjoy the, the it's mint tea and the shisha, which is the flavored tobacco in hookahs. Did you see people uh, relaxing and spend their afternoon doing that rather than drinking alcohol? Yeah, um, um, all all age groups, men, women, both uh, enjoying. Shisha's in uh, after their lunch. It's quite a uh, it's quite a pastime over there. They seem to enjoy it, and uh, the shishas that I sampled were very pleasurable. You've been shooting along with Uncle If everyone could be updating that, I mean, if you and I could say that every day that that's what we did that week.